You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I have Joseph Basagania Riera. He's the uh, chairman and CEO of a company called Landos Biopharma. And the website is landosbiopharma.com. Joseph, thank you for coming. How are you doing today? Doing great. How about yourself? Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So tell me, uh, what, what's the premise of the company? What's the premise of Landos and what are you working on? So Landos is a company that develops safer and more effective therapeutics for autoimmune disease. There's uh, an unmet clinical need for uh, therapies that have a a more benign safety profile, particularly in Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, but also other autoimmune indications. And Landos has a unique expertise in the interface of uh, immunity and metabolism that we are harnessing to identify new therapeutic opportunities to tackle these widespread and debilitating diseases. Um, the, the unmet need in Crohn's and UC is connected to the use of uh, drugs that um, have significant side effects, including cancer, infection, and death. And in addition, they are generally injectable. Uh, in many cases, they require infusions in the hospital. Landos is uh, focusing on uh, developing not only therapies that are safer and more effective, but also more convenient for uh, addressing those unmet uh, needs of autoimmune disease patients. Our lead asset is BT11, an orally active, gut-restricted, small molecule therapeutic for Crohn's and UC. It targets a new mechanism of action, the lanthionine synthetase like 2 pathway, one of those uh, pathways in the interface of immunity and metabolism. It's a dual mechanism of action. Not only uh, this pathway decreases the inflammatory responses connected to tissue damage and disease in uh, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, but also it increases anti-inflammatory responses. And, and the net result is that um, we provide mucosal healing and uh, recovery uh, faster with uh, a better uh, adverse effect profile. Why has it been such a challenge so far to come up with a, a better protocol for Crohn's disease and other you know, IBD, et cetera? What's so difficult about it? Yeah, I, I think um, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, and I, I would say this is applicable broadly 
to the autoimmune disease space in general, um, suffers from the challenge of um, decreasing the immune responses, uh, making the immune system less capable of causing damage, of uh, inducing disease, while at the same time not turning it off too much that uh, you may inadvertently induce immunosuppression. And the general approach that has been used for, for the last 15, 20 years is um, a very prevalent and dominant use of biologic therapies, which um, they are, in many cases, targeting one cytokine, one of the inflammatory elements that the immune system produces. For instance, TNF-alpha would be one of those examples, right? TNF-alpha blockers, um, when, when you inhibit that uh, component of the immune system, you're only taking into account uh, a single component in a massively and dynamically interacting network. And there's generally redundancies that that are embedded within how the immune system works. So you may block that uh, specific cytokine, that specific molecule, but then there's other pathways that are equally inflammatory that compensate for that inhibition. Um, as opposed to that approach, which um, is, has the, the side effect profile we've discussed before, we are going after a very selective novel pathway, uh, lanthionine synthetase like 2 that once activated, it triggers um, the inhibition of several of these inflammatory markers, TNF-alpha, but also interferon gamma, interleukin-6, MCP-1, and more importantly, it increases the anti-inflammatory arm of the immune system. And um, so when those two arms work together, the decrease of the inflammatory cytokines that are responsible for the damage uh, within the gastrointestinal tract in Crohn's and UC, and at the same time, uh, activation of the anti-inflammatory responses connected to mucosal healing, the therapeutic efficacy is very dramatic. And in fact, in our preclinical testing, we have shown that uh, BT11, our lead compound for Crohn's and UC, uh, is not only efficacious in, in five mouse models of inflammatory bowel disease, but in two of these models, we've done head-to-head comparisons of BT11 versus other drugs, including biologics and 5-ASA, and BT11 has been able to outperform. So we are very excited to um, to have this uh, very robust preclinical package. We've completed phase one clinical testing last year, where we showed that BT11 has an outstanding safety profile. Even at, at high doses, the adverse event profile of BT11 was no different than placebo. And importantly, we're able to show that one of the key biomarkers of inflammatory responses was decreased by BT11. That was very encouraging and was consistent with what we had seen in our uh, previous preclinical studies. And now in August of this year, we announced the first the dosing of the first patient in a, a phase two study with 195 ulcerative colitis patients uh, with three groups, a low-dose BT11, high-dose BT11, and placebo. And uh, we are going to uh, conduct this study over next year, and, and we are excited to have uh, the data in the second half of 2020. Yeah, it's weird. Um, <clears throat> when there's an autoimmune response, it's selective. You know, it seems to target a certain part of the body and not the entire body. Otherwise, I'm sure the entire body would fall apart. But yet, our response to fixing that is not selective. I guess it's been to just suppress the, the immune system, you know, or certain aspects of it. Have you identified why, in particular, let's say in Crohn's, that that part of the body is is attacked? Like, 
how does the immune system know, how does it know to target those particular types of cells and why do you understand that mechanism? Yeah, I think that um, we are a company that um, is, uh, is basically designed with the mission of um, serving the unmanned clinical needs of, of these patients. And in order to do so, we are very embedded in the science. So the mechanistic understanding of BT11 and the LANCL2 pathway or other targets that we have uh, in our development pipeline is absolutely crucial. And, um, and, and you are bringing up a great point. So there's, there's a broad range of autoimmune diseases uh, from Crohn's and you see that are uh, gastrointestinal tract oriented, where we have lupus that involves, you know, the spleen, the kidneys, rheumatoid arthritis, the joints, multiple sclerosis, uh, the nervous system, and so on and so forth. And, and the reality is that the prevalence of autoimmune disease is growing. So there's more people that are diagnosed uh, with uh, Crohn's and UC, but also uh, other autoimmune diseases in the U.S. and worldwide. And there's a variety of hypotheses that, that support that uh, from, you know, the hygiene hypothesis that the, the immune system uh, in developed societies is not as challenged as in other uh, societies, and, and therefore it uh, gets uh, out of sync and starts uh, responding against parts of our bodies that usually uh, it should not respond to. The immune system is designed to destroy infections, to destroy bacteria, viruses, fungi, at the same time is designed to destroy tumors in, in the case that uh, uh, some people develop you know, cancer. And uh, excessive, dysregulated, uncontrolled responses of the immune system in the context of autoimmune disease are, are causing significant damage, are, are uh, disrupting the life of patients, are disrupting the life of those families. And, and we've been very systematic and deliberate in how we approach particularly Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, and that's what I'm going to talk about. But, but we have a pipeline of other assets for other autoimmune indications, including uh, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis that are at uh, preclinical stage, IND enabling stage. But getting back to BT11, our lead asset for Crohn's and UC, before we started the development program, we we've, uh, did an, an in-depth analysis of what would be the ideal drug given this disease and given the unmet need of the patients. And we realized that we wanted to develop a drug that was uh, provided orally as a once-a-day tablet. Uh, not two pills a day, but one day, uh, one pill a day, and and uh, the oral was going to be much more convenient than an injectable or an infusion in the hospital. We also realized that some of the problems in the current drugs um, for Crohn's and UC are the the side effect profiles, this uh, cancer, infection, and death, the the black box warnings connected to some of those. And so we wanted to design a drug that would act locally in the gastrointestinal tract, bring the immune system back in sync through a novel mechanism of action, the LANCL2 pathway that I've described earlier, but that would not have uh, significant systemic exposure so that it will not cause a systemic immunosuppression. So the immune system in the rest of the body would be able to continue to fight infections, uh, cancer, and, and other um, uh, diseases while 
in the gastrointestinal tract, where in Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, the immune system is excessively activated and out of control, our therapy would bring it down. And so BT11 um, is had the checkbox in each of these um, uh, boxes, um, had, had a check mark in each of these boxes where it's orally active, gut restricted, has limited systemic exposure. And, and we're very excited that in a matter of 18 months, We've gone from um, early conception, preclinical stage to a phase two ready asset, and now we are in the middle of, of a very robustly powered um, global phase two uh, clinical trial with about 50 sites around the world, 11 countries. Uh, we find our key opinion leaders are very excited about the new mechanism of action, uh, the toxicity profile, the potential for safety. So we are excited uh, with uh, what we've accomplished so far about BT11. I think that it it uh, it has the potential to to show uh, an outstanding um, safety profile in the context of impressive efficacy. How selective is this pathway, or how unique is this? Is this pathway unique only to Crohn's, or is it various? or any condition, any autoimmune condition that affects the, the gut seems to have this pathway involved? So the pathway is quite critical in immune cells. And, and in fact, we've uh, created um, you know, knockout mice that uh, do not have the LNCL2 pathway, and we've demonstrated that their ability to um, respond to the drug is impaired. So if we compared a wild-type mouse versus an, an LNCL2 knockout mice and we give them BT11, we induce IVD. The one that expresses the pathway will um, show therapeutic efficacy when the pathway is not there, the therapeutic uh, efficacy is not present. Um, so the drug is very selective. Now, this pathway is present in all immune cells, not only in the gastrointestinal tract. So if we have cells in the spleen, that would be relevant for lupus. Um, this LANCL2 pathway will play a role, and we can pharmacologically activate that pathway and elicit therapeutic act activity in the joints, the same thing. But remember, for the Crohn's and UC, we designed a drug that is locally acting, that it's gut-restricted. It doesn't uh, it's not absorbed. Very small concentrations make it to circulation. So BT11 is designed to activate the LANCL2 pathway in the gastrointestinal tract and provide therapeutic efficacy in Crohn's and UC and uh, inflammatory diseases of the GI tract. We have other LANCL2 ligands that have a different PK profile that are able to be absorbed, that have high bioavailability, and those are being pursued in the context of those um, other autoimmune indications such as lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, type 1 diabetes, where that systemic exposure is necessary. And, and they act also selectively through the LANCL2 pathway. Gotcha. Um, it sounds like the immune system has uh, several layers of action. You know, there's the general action, I guess, to take care of any, uh, any attack on the body, but then there's maybe self-specific type actions or, you know, certain pathways, I guess, that, that are reserved for, uh, you know, for an immune response to certain cell types. Is that is that the case or am I just speculating incorrectly? No, I think at the high level that that's accurate. I, I would say that the, the immune system is highly complex and dynamic. And it's, it's so fluid and heterogeneous in its function that for every action, for every function that results in 
inflammation or destruction of a pathogen, the immune system has built in a mechanism that makes sure that that response doesn't go too far and mm. results in destruction of um, tissue or of uh, healthy tissue. So there's there's two mm. arms of the immune system that are applicable to um, each facet of how the immune system operates. One is called the effector arm, which is generally inflammatory, destroys infected cells, destroys cancer cells, and the other is the regulatory. The LANCL2 pathway acts at both levels. It decreases excessive effector responses by decreasing TNF-alpha, interferon gamma L6, uh, MCP1, and at the same time, it enhances these regulatory anti-inflammatory responses that are critical to bring the immune system and the tissue back to homeostasis and, and provide, uh, in, in this case, mucosal healing. What about the, uh, the microbiome associated with the areas that you're looking at? I would think that plays possibly a major role. Have you looked into that at all? Yes, uh, the you know the interaction between the mucosal immune system, the immune system in the gut, and the microbiome is fascinating. So we have trillions of bacteria, and uh, it, by itself, those trillions of bacteria have complex networks that interact, and then they have uh, mechanisms of communicating with the host, with the epithelial cells, the immune cells through metabolites. Um, through uh, uh, changes in the nutrient status by uh, production, changing the uh, production of um, proteins by the immune system. We have um, looked at um, uh, the effects of BT11 on the host site, and we've described that BT11 is crucial at regulating CD40 cell responses. We've looked as to whether BT11 is having a direct effect on the microbiome. And our data indicates that, like, for instance, if we culture BT11 and um, a mixture of, of gut bacteria, we don't see any change in the microbiome. However, if we give BT11 to, let's say, mice, and then we measure how those mice that have been treated with BT11 have uh, differences in microbiome when compared to mice that are not treated, we see that um, the treated uh, mice have a microbiome that is richer in uh, commensal beneficial bacteria. And so since BT11 doesn't have a direct effect in the microbiome, what we are hypothesizing is that the effects of BT11 in the microbiome are indirect and because there's less inflammatory responses within the gastrointestinal tract, the, the lower uh, inflammatory responses reshape the uh, microbiota composition, and, and uh, that reshaping results in, in a more beneficial uh, commensal microbiota uh, in treated um, uh, with BT11 individuals when compared to non-treated. But again, we, we don't think that BT11 is having a direct effect on the microbiome. BT11 changes the immune system, and those changes in the immune system in turn uh, result in a, a more balanced microbiome. Yeah, maybe they allow a restoration of a more healthy microbiome, which therefore then positively reinforces the, uh, the change that you've made. Maybe that's part exactly. of the mechanism of action. Exactly. Once you have a more balanced microbiome with a greater presence of commensal beneficial bacteria, then those bacteria will um, start producing signals that will uh, result in long-term mucosal healing. 
And so it's uh, everything is part of an ecosystem where we are looking at how do we change the immune system to turn off those excessive inflammatory responses? How are we increasing the regulatory side of the immune system? And then what are the downstream implications of, of this therapeutic efficacy of BT11 uh, that happens uh, within the host site, in the intestinal wall, how are those trickling down in changes, beneficial changes at the microbiome level that in turn uh, provide uh, uh, that longer-term restoration? I, yeah, I guess maybe it's too much to consider, but uh, what about diet during the, uh, you know, during the administration of this, uh, this protocol? And you modulated that, that, like the mice and diet to see how it you know it affects it dramatically. You no, know, the the diet part of it uh, is is a component that uh, is is very dear to our heart. With um, one of the reasons is that one of our core competencies is that interface of immunity and metabolism. How the immune system changes in the context of more glucose or less glucose, where that energy comes from oxidative phosphorylation versus glycolysis. Uh, we've determined over the years that um, an immune system that uses more oxidative phosphorylation as a source of energy tends to be a more regulatory, anti-inflammatory uh, immune system, particularly CD40 cells, whereas those glycolytic pathways are more connected to TNF-alpha production and more inflammatory responses. So I would say the underlying diet uh, definitely plays a role in the outcomes. The, as you can imagine, the studies that, that we are conducting are, are quite controlled in terms of not only uh, a protocol of treatment with the drug, BT11, but having some standard diets. The interesting thing is that um, we came across the LANCL2 pathway, uh, our target for BT11, uh, in the context of studying a natural compound. We were studying abscisic acid, which is found in, you know, in very small concentrations in, in fruits and vegetables, such as figs, banana, and so on. But it's also produced in very small concentrations by immune cells in the context of inflammatory or immune stress from the carotenoid acid pathway. Of course, it's a natural compound, so the level of potency was limited. But that's, we use that natural compound to begin to understand the LANCL2 pathway. And then we realized, oh, so a natural compound is activating LANCL2 CL2, and it's decreasing inflammatory responses. Can we design a drug that will more potently activate that pathway and uh, that we can use for treatment of Crohn's, UC, and, and other autoimmune indications? So um, everything goes back, at, to some degree, back to the diet. But of course, the VT11 program is, is a drug development program, even though we came across the LANCL2 pathway actually studying a natural compound that can be found in the diet. I don't know if you said this before. How do you induce Crohn's or IBD in mice? Yes, there's a variety of animal models of um, of uh, inflammatory bowel disease uh, in in mice. Um, we've used five mouse models. Um, um, the one of them is called the dextrin sodium sulfate model, in which um, uh, we use a chemical that targets the epithelial layer of the intestine, and that results in inflammation, and we've used these in uh, mice and pigs. Uh, we've also used the interleukin-10 knockout model. In this case, the mice are genetically modified to not have interleukin-10, which is an anti-inflammatory cytokine 
So in the absence of this anti-inflammatory uh, cytokine, the mice develop a spontaneous uh, what's called panenteritis, which is inflammation throughout the gastrointestinal tract. It can involve the colon. It, it can also in, involve the ileum. And, uh, and so we've used that model and shown efficacy. We've also used the adoptive transfer model by which we've obtained CD4 cells uh, from uh, donor mice, and then we've injected them to immunologically naive recipients. Um, and those immunologically naive recipients then um, um, elicit, uh, allow those CD4 cells to differentiate into effector cells that produce inflammatory cytokines such as interferon gamma, TNF alpha, and so on. Those cells migrate into the gastrointestinal tract, to the colon, particularly, and in some cases, the ileum, and cause inflammation. So the, those are three models. And there's two more we've used, uh, a bacterial-induced model of, um, of IVD called the Citrobacter rodentium model, uh, which is basically we infect mice with the bacteria, and then uh, we induce um, intestinal inflammation. And the last one, which is uh, very valuable from a um, uh, translational perspective, is the MDR1 uh, knockout model. Uh, in this case, uh, there's uh, an initial change in the ability of epithelial cells uh, to, to deal with transport of metabolites that results in leakiness in the gut, and eventually there's an involvement in uh, CD40 cells that infiltrate the gastrointestinal tract, and it, it becomes a very um, uh, similar to Crohn's disease model. And on top of these five models, we've developed and used the PIG model of uh, inflammatory bowel disease, again, using the dextrin sodium sulfate model, the chemical that, that initially wipes the epithelial barrier and then induces uh, inflammation uh, mediated by macrophages or by T cells. And I think that something very unique about the BT11 program is that we have shown efficacy in each of the animal models um, that we've used. Um, most drugs that are currently in the market have been tested in two to three models, and they've shown efficacy uh, maybe in one or two. We have shown efficacy of BT11 in, in these five models. And in addition, we've used the PIC model to better understand the PKPD relationship within the GI tract, not only of BT11 drug substance, but the drug product. So basically the tablets that we develop for our phase one and phase two studies. Um, so there's a broad range of models. Those are the five models that, that we've used. There's other models that, that we haven't used. But I think in a nutshell, those, are, those would be the top models in, in inflammatory bowel disease. So you're able to induce it, you know, at least five different ways. What does that tell you about how it may, be likely, to, how it may likely happen in people? Yes, that's, uh, that's a great question. And I think that um, there's always the thought that whatever you discover in, in an animal model, you need to be able to assess the translational value, right? So that there's controversy. Well, if you see efficacy in one mouse model, does it mean that it will for sure um, demonstrate therapeutic efficacy in, in humans? Well, to address that, we haven't tested BT11 in one mouse model. We've tested it in, in five mouse models, and we've tested several uh, LANCL2 ligands. So BT11 was part of a library. Some of the other compounds that we did not move forward had shown efficacy maybe in two models, but, but not in the others, some of them in, in one model. So we've shown uh, we've moved forward the assets that have shown a greater efficacy. And, and then on top of that, as I was mentioning earlier, we've gone the extra mile of 
choosing an animal model that is highly recognized to be uh, closer to humans from a translational perspective. So pigs are more similar to humans in terms of gastrointestinal tract anatomy, physiology, immunology than mice. And so we wanted as an intermediate step before moving uh, to humans to have some of that pig data. And, and not only we've seen efficacy in the five mouse models, but the pig model also demonstrated efficacy. And then there's some biomarkers that we've seen consistently changed uh, in the context of BT11 treatment. One of them is fecal calprotectin. Uh, fecal calprotectin is um, produced by neutrophils. It's an inflammatory cytokine. It's considered a biochemical uh, measurement of inflammation in stool. And elevated fecal calprotectin levels indicates the migration of neutrophils, which are inflammatory cells of the immune system, into the intestinal mucosa. We have seen across these animal models that BT11 can decrease calprotectin in stools, and moreover, we've shown that the ability of BT11 to decrease fecal calprotectin outperforms that of other drugs, such as TNF-alpha blockers or 5-ASA. So a key question that we ask in our phase one uh, clinical trial was, um, is BT11 capable of decreasing fecal calprotectin? Um, uh, will we be able to use this biomarker? And our data, and we published this in Inflammatory Bowel Disease Journal, show that yes, uh, not only BT11 is safe, as I mentioned earlier, even tested at, uh, at high uh, doses such as um, 100 milligrams per kilo, which is about 7 grams of BT11. We saw uh, no differences in adverse event profile when compared to placebo, but more importantly, we saw that drop in fecal calprotectin. So there are some indications of translation along the way. Does it move from mice to pigs? Do we still see the efficacy? The answer was yes. Uh, do we see the changes in fecal calprotectin in humans? The answer is yes. And, and so um, does it mean that uh, the mouse models are infallible? No. In fact, uh, in many cases, they have not translated. But if you use the mouse models in combination of you know, translational assays, carefully selected biomarkers, and then go the extra mile on choosing a large animal model that is more similar to humans, the likelihood that those predictions will be accurate also increases. Wow, all right. We looked at this from many, many angles so far. So what's the uh, the pathway from here? You said that you're, uh, you're through phase one clinical trials, or what's, what's the pathway until this will actually be in use? Yeah, so we, we completed uh, phase one uh, clinical testing um, in December of, of last year. We've, uh, we've initiated uh, phase two a study with 195 ulcerative colitis patients. Uh, we have three groups, uh, low-dose VT11, high-dose VT11, uh, placebo. The study will have a 12-week induction followed by a maintenance phase and will have endoscopy at baseline 12 weeks and at the end of the maintenance phase. And so we'll have the induction phase data in the second half of 2020, so uh, next year. Once we have that data, we can uh, talk with the FDA, uh, have an end of phase two meeting, uh, begin uh, planning and implementing the phase three, phase three study, which will be a larger um, uh, ulcerative colitis study. And the drug could be in the market as early as 2023. So depending, of course, on the results of the phase two and, and phase three study. So now we are focusing on implementing uh, this phase two study. Uh, we'll be starting a Crohn's disease study next year. 
um, with um, about 130 uh, Crohn's disease patients. And, and we'll also be advancing uh, some other assets that are currently in the pipeline in IND enabling stage to phase one. So we are very excited not only about BT11, but uh, other assets in, in our pipeline. That's great. So how can people find out more and keep uh, pace with what's going on when the, you know, as the drug moves through uh, the clinical trials? So we um, are updating our website on, on a regular basis. Uh, they can visit our website uh, at uh, landosbiopharma.com. Uh, and um, we uh, will also be having some uh, press releases over the next uh, few months announce, announcing the progress that we are making with uh, you know, the interim analysis, phase two results. Uh, we are um, engaging additional sites. And uh, we are very excited about uh, our ability to help address uh, this unmet clinical need and ultimately serve uh, the patients with autoimmune disease with BT11 and, and other drugs in our pipeline. Very good. Well, Joseph, I appreciate you coming on the call. Thank you for being here and for your work. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.